You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 2 of Another Name for Everything, casual conversations with Richard Rohr, responding to listener questions from his new book, The Universal Christ, and Season 1 of this podcast. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And I'm Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst calls from school nurses, late night grocery runs, and the shifting state of our world. This is the 10th of 12 weekly episodes. In this episode, we're diving into your questions about how do we heal division in a world that others. All right. So the theme of this conversation is healing division in a world that others. And Richard, we wanted to begin this conversation with a question that I know that you've been writing a lot. You've mentioned it here a few times on on Paul and corporate sin um, and some of the, the ways that we have misunderstood that. And I feel like this question from Michael in Nashville uh, really helps kind of get to at least how I'm hearing you talk about some of these ideas. Michael writes, my question has to do with the notion of corporate sin. In discussing corporate sin, I feel some internal pushback. I can understand that an individual can be racist, but how can a population or a group be racist? Do we not diminish the importance of individual choice by classifying this type of sin as corporate? No. <laughs> uh, his his response is probably a very understandable one that you would think you're letting the individual off the hook uh, and that's not true you know uh, the way I teach it in the school which I don't think is in the book uh, there are three sources of evil the world, the flesh and the devil in that order at first there's a whole matrix of agreement on violence or wealth or, or racism. Then I individually act out. And I'm just saying that's the flesh. The devil we won't even get to right now. But uh, the up to now, he's expressing how most people think. Sin is totally localized at the second level, flesh. And I think the much better moral teaching, which I find, uh, you know, very clear in St. Paul, is you better critique it, first of all, at the corporate level. To recognize that we've all agreed that uh, killing is necessary if it's going to protect America. Let's just pick a big, you know, difficult one for everybody. Now, we all know the commandment is thou shalt not kill. But we're going to make a giant exception and create a rather broad culture of murder. Uh, Every country has done it. I'm not picking on us individually. But this is the schizophrenia at the heart of our moral positioning. And I think the real moral insecurity of so many Christians. We name it good at the corporate level. Invisibly so, though. It's so agreed upon by the corporate that it's hard to recognize it as really evil at the individual. Uh, So we're not saying either or. We're saying both and. So um, would this be, I don't know, I don't want to hurt your feelings, Michael, but it's an understandable response, but really it's a red herring. the whole population can be racist. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, look at the map of where people are are uh, lynched. It's very clear there's centers of concentration where somehow lynching was l- legitimated because the number is so overwhelming. So it isn't your fault, but it comes from a lack of any kind of in-depth moral teaching Mm -hmm. by totally localizing sin at the individual level 
and letting the corporate off scot-free. Mm-hmm. It connects to what you were saying previously about white privilege, where yeah. uh, that can only exist if there's a system that will give that privilege yeah. to yeah. Uh, people, right. white people. And encourages a, a lack of uh, awareness of it, because then we don't see that we're right. benefiting from it. Right. Yeah, so it's almost like the waters we swim in. It's hard to, to locate because we're in it so deeply. But part of what you're helping us see, Richard, is that that, that this is part of our uh, that part of what we need to heal is our capacity to both see that kind of collective mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. sin, recognize it's there, so that then we can make a different choice. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have to do with our common notion of the imputing of guilt. And he's probably used to, you impute the guilt to the individual. You are guilty of sin. Mm -hmm. But saying that there are cultures guilty of sin, none of us have had any training in that. Mm -hmm. And if we'd listened to the prophets, we would have got it. Because that's where the prophets start. Israel is sinful. Now, I don't know if this man is a a biblical man, but just read the prophets. Mm -hmm. They start with corporate sin. And, and that's where we learn this world, the flesh, and the devil. But I admit that in recent centuries, neither Catholic nor Protestant has been raised that way. Jenny from Australia asks an interesting uh, question related to corporate sin. Uh, you've already explained to us a lot about the relationship of the individual mm. complicity in corporate sin, but she says, I struggle with how to not get upset by both personal and societal injustice. So she's talking more about the response here. So she says, what do I do or think when I feel I have been unfairly judged or treated? What am I forgiving? And how do I help reduce the injustices I get upset by? So almost like the response side of it, when you do notice it, um, something, and I think it sounds like she's saying, in her case, when she's being treated unfairly, what's what's the loving response to that? without indulging it. That shows maturity too, because I think it is a thin line. How do you name it without making it part of your now superiority from above, because I can name it. How do you name it without identification with it and think I am now the uh, moral person because I can see it. What am I forgiving? I, that's so good. How do I help reduce the injustices I get upset by? You've got to go ahead and work, but check your thermometer of motivation every two hours. You know, Am I coming right now from a righteousness place, a superiority place, an exclusively angry place? A little bit of anger is okay. <laughs> but it better be tempered by recognizing intense anger is your ego's identification with the hurt and with being offended, which you certainly have a right to for a while. That's why I've quoted so much over the years that line in the New Testament, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's different than saying, don't ever be angry. (laughs) It's identification with your anger, and, and I've seen it in so many people who work for social justice that become angry people. They're gruff, they push things around. You feel pushed around. Not in all cases, please don't hear that as a generalization, but it's more common than I would have liked to admit. Um, Do you think that Jesus can be a model for us. <laughs> what a funny question. <laughs> can he? Do you think Dare that Jesus, <laughs> do you think Jesus could be a central reference point, Richard? <laughs> um, but I mean in particular to uh, the ways in which some of his more zealot disciples wanted him to tackle the problems of injustice of his time through the systems that created it. In other words, they wanted him to tackle empire via empire, mm-hmm. whereas his approach of nonviolent resistance was through loving, healing, and inclusion of those who are being most impacted. Very good. And I just think, in, in a way, like we love throwing around nonviolent resistance, 
when in reality we're just talking about resistance that's very violent in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not sure, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not sure we're capable of, um, of uh, imparting or making a change with nonviolent resistance unless we can get to that nonviolent yeah. place within. And I don't know what distinction I'm trying to sure, make here, but sure. there's something there for me in that um, instead of trying to tackle problems of injustice via the, the avenues that cause it, which tend to be through these corporate, systematic, mm. you know, empire-based, what is it about Jesus' healing ministry that gives us a different path? What Jesus does, it seems to me, is he models the alternative. As you know, that's one of our core principles. The best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. So I'm going to do it in a different way. And one of the first levels doing it in a different way is a quiet but very real non-cooperation, non-involvement even, in the systems of oppression and empire and domination, even when they are the synagogue or the temple. Uh, He doesn't fight them directly. He appears and is this damning them with faint praise? Uh, I think maybe it is. He ignores them. You've heard the example I, I often use because it's such a real one. If you look at the geography of the world Jesus grew up in, he grew up in Nazareth, There's only one city being built and growing in that region in his lifetime. It's nine miles down the road. It's the regional Roman capital called Sepphoris. Sepphoris is never mentioned in the New Testament. There's no note that he ever went there. If he was a carpenter or a man who worked with his hands, that's where all the work would have been. Did he and his dad, Joseph, just ignore the place? I don't know that they did, but it's a visual example of there's the Romans doing their thing. We're not going to help them build it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, all I'm saying is you could make that case. And his uh, teaching in the countryside, he does go in the temple but several times he has some pretty bad things to say about it when he enters into it. And yet he honors them. This is my house, but it is a house of prayer uh, and not a place for the gathering of bandits where he saw the misuse of money for religious purposes. So um, I, all I can say is once you're given this pair of eyes to see Jesus was a, a quiet non-cooperator with stupidity, with oppression, with domination, and with exclusion. Mm -hmm. Just go put that lens on if you can risk doing it and reread the Gospels and say it's implied in most stories. He's not a joiner of the dominant system. He's a critique of the dominant system. Someone did a study of Luke's gospel and uh, recorded every time Luke's gospel uses the word the crowd. And he comes to the conclusion the crowd is always wrong. Always. Either by infatuation or opposition. Uh, He is not a part of the crowd. That's why he's taken his three on the road and his twelve on the road or up mountaintops, even visually creating an alternative consciousness uh, while not throwing out the temple or not directly attacking the priesthood. Although in truth, Matthew 23, he's directly attacking them (laughs) verbally. We just were never given the eyes to see that. I, I know when I first Uh, was given those eyes, I was shocked at how much I have not seen in the New Testament because I read it from the eyes of the dominant consciousness Mm -hmm. and pulled Jesus into that. Mm -hmm. He's talking about my group. (laughs) He's actually talking against my group most of the time, if you're the dominant 
or the the empower. I don't know how everybody understands the word dominant, but I mean the group with the power. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The group, and as soon as you're in the group with the power by any criteria, gender or race or religion or ethnicity or money, you have good reason to be afraid of the gospel because <laughs> it's going to critique all of those levels. Yeah. And it's so contrary to the, the way you've been talking about systems. Uh, we talked about in the last season of the podcast of too big to fail of any system that's too big to fail. It should be a warning that it is like the crowd uh, in the example you just gave. Um, and knowing that, especially the thing about the model of Jesus was, not too big to fail. Failure is a part of the path and is inherent and, and be yes, ready for it. Yes, yes. We got a number of questions about capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, and so one here is from Bubba from Fairhope, Alabama. Was this from the book? Did I talk about capitalism? No, this was in season. season one. We were talking about capitalism oh, a few times. Oh, okay. I didn't think I took it on. Yeah. <laughs> so we wanted to, to bring it up in this uh, Good, go question ahead. from Bubba where he says, Richard seems awfully hard on capitalism. In fact, he paints us all with one stereotypical brush. His comment, I hope you don't look at Playboy or Gamble, but then, oh God, there's capitalism. Did I ever say that? You must have. <laughs> I, I can't imagine yeah. I'd say it in that way, but anyway, yeah. go ahead. And then he says, Richard, can you further expand your thoughts <laughs> on that? And I got to say the the part that we cut from this question was just him being so thankful for the podcast and for oh, all three good. of us and excited yeah. to someday connect. It shows such lovely maturity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it shows he's, he's just being honest by his experience. I guess I should start by what I heard from our own customer service department. They expected that my critiques are theology or morality of gender would engender the most negative male. And they were surprised to discover that the most negativity came from my critique of capitalism. That really surprised me. But it showed me what a sacred cow it is. I don't know what else to say. And you know how we, we think of it is anything above criticism will soon be demonic. I'm going to repeat that. Anything above criticism will soon be demonic. I usually speak of rigid capitalism and helpful capitalism. Uh, capitalism that is really empowering people, and we can't deny that it has for much of the world. I, I'm sorry in the segment he heard that he didn't hear that. Uh, so it's always, if I paint us with one stereotypical brush, I don't th think I want to do that. If, you, if I did come across that way, it's the inability to give any nuance in one little comment on this or that or whatever. Uh, but uh, I, what, what I suspect I was doing in that context was again trying to broaden sin beyond individual sin, looking at playboy or gambling, uh, and capitalism, which I condemn the guy who's looking at his playboy. I probably wouldn't, but uh, I'd say it's just sort of stupid. Uh, it's, it's not going to make you ever grow up. But I can't even say that about capitalism. I can say it about playboy, and no one's going to get upset. They might feel guilty. But why can't I critique capitalism? And I'll, that's all I'd offer Bubba here. Uh, why would that be a, a fearful thing to do? Uh, you know, even Pope John the, Paul II, who was raised in communist Poland, he, in his encyclical letters, I know this is just to Catholics, but... He said there's good capitalism and there's bad capitalism. There's good communism, you wouldn't call it communism then, you'd call it socialism, and there's bad communism. But we're not used to thinking both end. Mm -hmm. We love, talk about one fatal swoop, capitalism is good, communism is bad. Mm -hmm. That's too easy. 
I mean, you, you know uh, that story of when I joined the Franciscans and one of the first classes in front of our novice master, he said, now boys, I want you to know you've just joined a communist organization, right? Well, we own all things in common. Uh, that when you take the vow of poverty next year, you will give up the right to personally own anything. You may use things. And in the early years, we'd have to write inside of our books or ad usum simplicem. That's Latin. For the simple use of. And you had to you have a magic marker and your ad usum simplicem. Friar Alexander, my name was Alexander then, <laughs> and I felt such pride. This is for the simple use of. Now we don't do that anymore, but I can see what, what they were trying to teach us. That isn't yours. So um, it taught us detachment. It taught us, taught us non-consumerism. When capitalism has no idealization of the virtue of simplicity, simple lifestyle, what the poor have to teach us, that the meaning of life is the increasing of consumption and production. That's demonic. That is not the meaning of life, period. <laughs> and we can't let them get away with it and, and think we're gospel people when we are worshiping this sacred cow of rigid capitalism, which, and the very fact that so many people responded, uh, tells me this is a sacred cow. Yeah. Your religion is the American economy, mm. uh, or any other country's economy for that matter. So it doesn't sound like he's being an unkind person himself, but uh, you better watch it, Bubba. <laughs> we um, love you, Bubba. <laughs> the fact that we can't critique it reveals that it's on a bad course. Yeah, and that sets up this next question so well because I do think we've conflated Christianity uh, has been conflated into um, uh, sort of co-opting or adopting a lot of these corporate sins that we don't like to look at. And That's as you just right. as you just mentioned, ownership and consumerism. Um, Andrew from Vancouver brings up the impact of that, um, that behavior. He says, the concept of a Christ-soaked world feels pressing and important when considering human-caused environmental issues like climate change and the breakdown of many formally functioning ecosystems around the world. How does the concept of a Christ-soaked world inform the relationship we ought to have with nature? and how we use the natural world. I think he's saying, as opposed to subdue it, which has been yeah. our kind of Christian yeah. relationship to nature. Um, yeah. For me, and of course it's, I think theologically, probably too much, but until you redefine the substructure, the fundamentum, the base, and say, what does reality grow out of? Uh, you can't reform it because the base keeps showing itself. Now, if the base is this is just matter, this is just secular, to use our word, this is just an object of consumption, that makes you live in a very different world. So what theology does, at least for me, and I hope to some degree for you or anybody who reads this book, is they're able to say, no, the fundamentum is sacred. It's not that we come along and add a little sacred by putting a cross on it, <laughs> which has been our model up to now, you know, or pouring holy water over it. Um, that's Formica top Christianity. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's I like that. Awesome. That's Visual. largely what we've had, you know. <laughs> where it isn't inherently sacred. In fact, it's inherently useless, except insofar as it makes money, mm -hmm. or is good for me right now. That's the unsacred universe most human beings live in today. So only religion is prepared to say what the utter final metaphysics is. What's be, metaphysics means that which is beyond the physics or beyond the physical. 
And we're saying that beyond the physical is the sacred. So you better not pour pollutants in this and think that you're being good. <laughs> you're being unholy. Uh, but that we haven't seen that as sin. Again, we could pour it in one spot and just leave it there until 10 years later some poor people want to build there. And here it is, back at us. And this isn't just our country, this is the whole earth. That the earth has been ravaged, polluted, in many ways that will never recover in known history. Um, One of my heroes is Wendell Berry. Oh, wonderful. Whenever uh, people ask him or say, like, I love the environment, his response is, no, you don't. Like, and because it's too big to say the environment is too, there's nothing there. So like, what's the place you love? (coughs) What's the plot of ground that you love or the flower or the Mm. the animal that connects you, right? That particular gateway into Uh the environment uses example. And I, I love that kind of pushback of, it's very easy to fall into just, broad categories without actually loving the yeah. thisness that you how talk can, about the thisness yeah. i was going to say that's john scotus yeah how can any of us love the environment mm-hmm. that's an illusion but you love your little piece of earth let's be serious about that and then we realize we're not even serious about that mm-hmm. right. or a concern with them a particular creature, you know, like you always mm. talk about your nature shows and people who, for whatever reason, are given to protect one species of an animal. It's like, it's interesting because what you're bringing up, Paul, is that we all need a personal touch point in order to connect to the universal. And so, even with this concern of the environment, where is the personal touch point that we can connect with mm-hmm. and um, live out an alternative, as you've been saying, Richard, of what is the Jesus alternative to that? that sees Christ in it and can respond with that kind of respect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is a funny example, but I'm going to go back to my chickens. Uh, <laughs> well, we have two chickens and one of them does not produce eggs. Mm. It's, and there's a thought in my mind of like, well, it's a useless chicken, you know, but like, can I just appreciate it in its chickenness Without and that particularity? Any money for you. Or yeah. Any breakfast for but you. But just enjoy it and know that it's got a companion. Like, is that enough? Can Isn't that be that enough? Interesting. That's a perfect example. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be thinking about that. We, uh, along with the individualistic mind that has destroyed our understanding of the gospel is the utilitarian mind. Yes, yes. The utilitarian. You could almost do a whole book on contemplation as the alternative of utilitarianism. Mm. 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 Someone, yeah, yeah. someone could do a whole book on that, Richard. Someone, someone could. Someone could, <laughs> could write a whole other book on <laughs> Our next question here is we kind of shift from some of the systematic thinking on this to how we also can just other individuals. Mm-hmm. And Tom from Michigan sets us up with this where he writes, if there is somebody who I don't see eye to eye with, to be honest, I don't like the person. Is it reasonable to try to put myself in that other person's shoes and consider that perhaps I am picking up on the other person's protective walls because of some sort of suffering they might be enduring? And also that the other person may be representative of a part of me that I don't like. And God is inviting me to look at myself and the plank in my eye before seeing the speck in the other person. <laughs> you have any thoughts on that, Richard? He's already answered it. <laughs> You're there, Tom. Yeah, that's beautiful. It, but even the way you say, is it possible that? Do you see he's left this opening for grace? Mm. He's le- left this opening for the other to not be other. The first sentence is, uh, maybe this distinction helps. Loving is not liking. Mm. And I don't think that's been clear to most of us. You quite naturally will not like a lot of things. The chemistry is off, the interests, the temperament is off. That doesn't mean you wish that person ill, but you wouldn't join them for a beer tonight, you know. But even if you had to, you'd make the best of it. And we've all done that a thousand times. Like when I grew out with you, Paul, I just, <laughs> <laughs> just grip my teeth and okay. I can. <laughs> 
Give me the grace so to endure. Boring. boring. <laughs> uh, that was perfect. We all have, yeah. And to demand that of ourselves that I should like everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Human nature is too complex, too multi layered. And there is a meaning to friendship. If we're all given the gift of friendship now and then, then there are other people who are acquaintances, co-workers, but they're not necessarily friends. Mm-hmm. doesn't make them bad. Uh, in fact, uh, the social scientists say, if I remember the number right, deep friends, the most you can have in your life are three or four. Mm-hmm. Deep friends, three or four. The psyche can't handle more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So transitioning from um, the distinction you're making of there's a difference between love and liking uh, to how sometimes that's carried out to straight violence of not loving, not liking to the point of violence. Mm. Andrew from Belfast, Ireland asks, uh, he says, in the podcast, Richard referred to the inclination towards scapegoating of the other. In Northern Ireland recently, we have seen the tragic killing of a 29-year-old journalist in Derry, a shocking death coming after many years of an admittedly turbulent peace process. What advice does Richard have on how Christians in Northern Ireland can best engage with those individuals in the community that are so fixed on and blinded by this tendency to scapegoat the other to a point of violence? How can we best act on a daily level to help encourage society to go beyond the dualistic mindset of them versus us that still dominates in Northern Ireland 21 years after a peace process that was meant to have concluded. You can see why religion did become so seemingly individualistic. Let me explain that After a while, the only way any of us will stop scapegoating is by resolving our own inner anxiety, hatred, negativity. There's no way around it. The healing of the individual is necessary for the healing of culture. Mm. And um, negative people who grew up in dysfunctional, hateful families, alcoholic families, they got to project that somewhere. And it's always going to be on the other. Although really it'll come home to roost and it'll be on your own family too. But the easy way is to really create, scapegoating is creating a problem. Mm -hmm. It really is. I will decide that, you know, Catholics or Protestants in this case, are the problem and I will fit my worldview around that which will allow me to mistreat them with impunity. I won't have to feel any guilt. The sad thing is it doesn't work because this guy is gonna, without knowing it, he's gonna have a lower self-image. He might have a righteous self-image the next day after he's killed the other or tortured the other or misused the other. But he cannot think well of himself because he has operated contrary to his fundamental identity, which is love. Uh, Now, that love has to be allowed to bubble up. Uh, uh, When I was in Avila in Spain, where you grew up, uh, they have in this shrine, a beautiful shrine to John of the Cross, you're familiar with Catholics having holy water fonts where we dip in and bless ourselves. But this one's right central in the room is one little bubble just keeps coming up from the bottom of the holy water font and bubbling through the top of the water. And then they had a wonderful quote from him there. Uh, That's what you have to get in touch with. Now call that inner healing call that peace, call that freedom, call that forgiveness. But this is where uh, I I don't want to make light of the individual healing ministry of the church. Angry people are going to be scapegoating people for certain. 
if, if you do not transform your pain, you will with certainty transmit it. And maybe it doesn't even need to be on the other. In some cases, it's your own children. Mm -hmm. You keep them in submission. You dominate over them. You curse them. And this is not uncommon. It's um, shocking to me how big of an impact the transition from seeing myself as an individual who therefore can scapegoat, right? Because only individuals can scapegoat, as you've said. Uh, there can only be a them if there's an us and there's a boundary between mm, us. That's right. And yet the <clears throat> universal Christ teaches us that there is no us and them. There is only <laughs> we. And so it's this profound um, antidote, but like you're saying, we have to practice and live into mm. it to actually let this idea uh, become embedded and be digested into our very being to the point that we no longer look at people as a them. Yeah. Um, that's the, talk about fundamentum. That's the foundational message of the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is no other. And why we've got to insist on the universal Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or we have again and again the legitimation of us and them. Mm -hmm. That our group has him, your group doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lie. They all have him. Yeah. Whether they know it or not. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can I bring this a little closer to home? If it's okay, I'm going right. to skip, skip ahead to Do this it. question because I feel like um, this is very much true in our country today. Lorraine from New York talks about, you know, since our country is so badly divided between liberal and conservative thinking, does Father Richard see any third way or reconciling of these opposites? What can I do to help in the reconciling and healing of these opposites? Mm. And just to add a note, you know, I think um, some of that other, I mean, it's like to see how much we are othering each other in yes. our country, both from the liberal sort of yes. intellectual elitism yes. that dismisses values and tradition and communities of belonging to um, those that feel maybe uncomfortable with some of the more liberal values or liberal leanings. We've, we've created such a polarity. Um, how, how would you answer this question? How do we help in reconciling and healing in our country today? I guess that was my deepest hope in writing the book, to offer the world a, uh, a truth that could not be separated, divided, earned, uh, ex uh, excluding. There was no room for exclusion inside of it. Because you're so right, as the question puts it, uh, I don't know how we're going to get out of this without a universal vision that isn't dependent upon anything except God being one <laughs> and God's love being one and God's love being universally given and potentially universally received. But that's the problem. There are People on both sides who don't receive it, they think they're going to resolve it by fighting, mm -hmm. by eliminating the gays. <laughs> Let's just eliminate the gays or whatever else, whatever other group. It, it might satisfy your, your need for uh, superiority, but it isn't going to uh, solve the human dilemma. Mm -hmm. It's the same with how we look at um, Trump supporters. The, the, those that are more in the liberal camp have that same tendency to other Trump supporters to dismiss. Um, and I, I do feel like this message uh, from your book is an invitation for us to consider how can we begin to soften our hearts, <laughs> soften our hearts. and begin to see ourselves as a we, um, as mm -hmm. really in this together. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do we begin to... And, and back to your point, Paul, about Wendell Berry's statement, you know, we tend to think of politics with like the big P out there in Washington, mm. D.C. Like, well, what am I going to do? Well, I guess I'm going to vote in the elections and, you know, get mad at my family members and have arguments at Thanksgiving. But what if the P could be the small politics of the art of relationship? What if it's about how we relate to the people in our communities, how we interact mm. 
where are we othering those in our very mm. midst mm. that we need to ask forgiveness for and listen to and connect with and maybe have a meal with? Mm-hmm. I mean, that feels like a little bit more of a tangible first step for me when I think about this mm. problem. Mm-hmm. Owning our own complicity in this yeah. bigger issue. And Richard, there's something that came to mind uh, with this kind of invitation of, of healing and reconciliation uh, I would wonder if as a kind of a way of close, closing and, and healing that division of othering, you went on a trip recently to the border uh, to, to visit, to stand in solidarity with those mm. who are being so othered. Um, can you share what that experience is like? Because I feel like it, some of the things that you have shared puts, um, puts flesh on the reality of these are not just ideas. These are people who are being... Uh, torn apart in their families and ridiculed when they when they come into the United States. Um, and I'm again, I'm not trying to make this political anyway, but just sure, the way sure. that you have shown <clears throat> up uh, recently since that just occurred. You know, in the refugee camps where we stopped, even after being a, a jail chaplain for 14 years, there I could say, okay, most of these people did something bad or deserve some kind of restriction or punishment. But the hard thing in the refugee camps was these were people running for their lives. Seldom have I experienced power and powerlessness in such clear opposition. These clutching their babies, holding their children's hands tightly, the little children looking up at me as the white man who could hurt them or, or help them. Uh, I just, it was horrible in a way. Um, and then the, the young men and young women, who if I'd sit down, they would just gather around. And here I couldn't even talk Spanish, but it was just like, of course, Elias had told him I was a priest. He said, sacerdote, sacerdote. So they'd all gra- gather around because all this trust they have in a priest. And I'd have to begin with lo siento. I, I am sorry, I can't talk to you. So Elias would, would translate. Uh, but they hung on my every word. And I don't even know that I said anything. But it's like we want to hear truth, wisdom, hope from the other world that we've spent. Many of these people have spent three weeks walking, carrying their children. It's just, I, the only way you can separate yourself from that is not to see it. Once you see it uh, with any degree of honest freedom, or any real photography, um, you every uh, cell in your body says, this is inhumane. America has come to this. We were heroic when we were killing people over in Flanders fields, you know, but now making life difficult for mothers with children <laughs> and then believing the lies our government is telling us that they're rapists and they're terrorists. And, um, and, and then we, we increase the problem on the other end by taking away all the money that we had been giving to Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. It's like, uh, let me just say, it's pretty clear. We do not want to solve the problem. We want to punish so, but do you see how that was our same view in, in our theology of hell? We don't want to heal people. We want to punish people. There is no evidence that the present U.S. government wants to solve the problem. It wants to punish the problem. Literally punish the taking away of shoestrings, the taking away of even of shoes, Two women came to visit me this morning who were down there earlier this week. And they said, now, in many cases, these boys, it's maybe just the last few blocks, but ICE is taking away their shoes and all their possessions in their backpack. 
So they literally come here with nothing. And so when you give them one, they just, they said tears come down their cheeks. And someone cares. Because you, can you imagine how cold the world feels? And here we're running into this country and they're humiliating us from the first step. I do know that most of America, if they saw that, would say this is intolerable. But it's easier just to listen to Fox News and accept the, the dualism. And, and I, I do convict news sources like Fox News. Not because they're usually Republican, but because they're so totally dualistic. Yeah, contributing to it. Yeah, at least CNN will almost always have one person on the panel who disagrees and states the alternative position. Uh, But when people only listen to, I know there's other news sources than Fox, but they're the easy, easy one to pick on. Uh, and I say that strongly, they're so easy to pick on. They exemplify dualistic blindness. And it's always taking the side of money, power, and war. Not calling it that, and white privilege. Uh, But calling it, I don't know, laws have to be obeyed. Now we Christian people were the people that were supposed to know that divine law superseded human law. I think we talked about this in previous, but it bears repeating. Where did this idolization of governmental law come when it contradicts the law of the Sermon on the Mount, the law of, of that even in the Hebrew scriptures of welcoming the stranger? But suddenly these people who say they love the Bible appear not to have read it. I don't know what else to say. So we got our problem. And uh, Pope Francis has said worldwide, he sees immigration as the problem of the rest of this century. The rest of this century. Now, when we got a government that isn't even trying to solve it, but actually trying to exacerbate it by the emphasizing of us being the victims. We're the victims of these terrible brown people coming across the border. Um, That's just evil. Do you, what does your prayer look like, Richard, when you feel these things and when you face them so squarely? What is your prayer in these moments, if you don't mind sharing? First, I don't want to pray. I just... I really don't. There's so much disdain in my heart, uh, so much anger in my emotional life uh, that I I don't want it to be softened. Mm. I resist any softening. So I resist prayer, first of all. I know I've got to pray for the president and those who are representing power and money. And lest anybody doubt, I do know that the Democrats represent power and money, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to the degree, but they're in the same ballpark of, you know, America first at all costs. That's how they got elected. They wouldn't have got elected if they weren't. I'm off the point. But I, I have to not just pray for Republicans, but Democrats, that, that we can have some stateswomen, and I say it that way because they seem to be, at this point, the more likely to emerge. Uh, the, the statesmen just aren't there, even in the Democratic Party. So people don't think I'm just picking on Republicans. They're almost unknown at this point in the Republican Party. I really don't know how many of these people can live with themselves. By, uh, they were always the party that, I'm not, I'm not answering your question again, I'm sorry. Uh, but that's what happens in my prayer life. That I go back to my anger, I go back to my uh, disdain, just disdain. 
And where does disdain come from? It comes from Richard thinking he's better. He's above that. He's beyond that. Uh, who's going to pour some love into these hard-faced politicians? I don't know how to do it. I, I don't, but I can ask for it. I can wait for it. That's the praying for the miracle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that this could that their hearts could be softened. And so it's no surprise that they're not going to make any trips down to the border. Mm. And if they do, they're going to be highly planned mm. so you won't see very much. Mm. Oh. Well, thank I you. I didn't really answer no, your prayer. No, you did. I mean, <laughs> you did in that you're, you're showing us with great humility your mm. own struggle with this and it's definitely that's struggle. allowing us an insight into um something that you said earlier which is the healing of the individual is necessary it really is as yeah. the healing of cult for the healing of culture. culture and so in a way you're showing us um with great transparency that when our hearts harden and when we struggle with these issues we have to first recognize that our hearts are hardening mm, that's right. <laughs> that there is disdain that's in there right. that we are mm -hmm. judging that we are othering and then ask for God's mercy to help soften our hearts so that hopefully we can be vehicles of that softening in others too. That's it. It is. That's when an evil comes home to roost. And if anybody thinks we're just emphasizing corporate sin, no. It's individual sin too. That you and I have hard hearts. Mm. And we, we find ways to justify that hardness almost every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm by what we saw on the news last night, mm -hmm. on either side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I can see why Jesus speaks so much of vigilance. Keep watch, keep watch, <laughs> or it's gonna take over. The po you will drink the Kool-Aid, to use our modern metaphor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Richard. Thank you. Yes, thanks, yeah. Richard. Wow, what good questions. Ooh, that he heavy stuff. Heavy yeah. stuff. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.